What's like a thing that you bought years and years ago that you look back on now and are like, God, that was so expensive. Oh my God, the list is so large. It's probably large for anybody who uses consumer tech. Uh, my external hard drive, like my one terabyte hard drive. I remember I bought like a 256 megabyte hard drive for five, $600, something like that. I bought a digital eight camera for $1,700, of which I saved $1,200 and change and quarters just to, to buy. And then years later, a few years later, it, it cost half that amount. And then I had this, this, uh, you had, uh, $1,200 in quarters. (laughs) That's probably a different story. Yeah. I saved up $1,200 in quarters working at a movie theater for five years. Cause you know, you're getting comfortable in a movie theater. You put your feet up on the chair in front of you You've bought those juji fruits or whatever, and then boom, all the change falls down. And then you've left a mess. It's too dark. You probably don't want to go rummaging for that change. And, you know, little old me comes in with a flashlight after the movie and finds it. And I found $1,200 worth of quarters over five years. I find this story uh, less than credible, largely because everybody knows nobody buys juji fruits. <laughs> that's, okay, nerds, that's rope, ridiculous. Uh popcorn, whatever it is. But Juji Fruits are my top movie theater candy, so don't even go there. Let's get back to tech. Come on, now you're like offending me. Yeah, all right. So uh, yeah, video camera is a good one. Actually, I had I have a, uh, my own video camera story. My my parents wanted videos of me periodically as a kid growing up, but couldn't afford a, a video camera because they were so expensive at the time. So my parents had like a timeshare situation with four other families where each family owned a fifth of this singular video camera and they would like schedule out major children's events. Uh, and, you know, one family would have the camera at a time. Oh it's amazing God. that that was like you were you were saving up hundreds of dollars in quarters. <laughs> my parents were like, you know, in a timeshare with a video camera, and now we every single one of us has like a much 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 better video camera at all times on our person. Oh my God, I've never heard of that. That is incredible. Well, kudos to your parents for like being savvy enough to seek out and enter that kind of arrangement. Um, I actually still record some of our podcasts on this uh, old Marantz PMD digital recorder that I bought 12 years ago for like $800. And now you can get it for $200. Anyway, the list goes on and on and on. Um, We could have a whole podcast on this. You all know these stories. We all have them. And aside from getting annoyed about reflecting how much something once cost, it's a good thing for us. Our electronics are getting cheaper and better. It's Not a big deal for me and my change collection, but what about power providers and the billions of dollars they're spending on new infrastructure? If they make the wrong bet, well, they won't be on a podcast laughing about it. They're going to be in front of their board members answering tough questions and in front of the ratepayers too. And that's what we're talking about today. The growing risk of miscalculating the cost of competitive and emerging technologies, particularly batteries. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. My co-host is Shale Khan, our number cruncher, our senior VP, and the uh, head of GTM Research. Hey, Shale. Hey, Stephen. I'm Stephen Lacey, the editor-in-chief of Green Tech Media. Welcome to all. We've got a story today that piqued our interest. Well, uh, it piqued Shale's interest initially. He turned me on to it. It's about a natural gas power plant. 
But as you'll hear us talk about, it's about much, much more than a natural gas power plant. The saga of the Puente Power Project really boils down to data about alternatives, about emerging tech. Are we using outdated numbers to justify fossil fuel projects like this one? So back in 2012, California regulators identified an area of Southern California where new flexible plants were needed. And NRG was selected to build the 262-megawatt Puente plant in Oxnard, California basically a flexible peaking plant. More recently, the California System Operator and California Energy Commission stepped in and requested more study of this and other projects, basically wanting to know if alternative preferred resources, this is a term used in California, uh, technologies like solar or batteries or demand response could play the same flexible role for less environmental harm and, more importantly, cheaper, which brings us to a new study on the matter showing that batteries and solar could perform the same function as the gas plant, but guess what? At 2.7 times the cost. So case closed, right? Build the gas plant. Not exactly. Shale Khan uh, took a dive into the analysis and found, well, more than a little problem. So what did you find? This is a really interesting case. Yeah, so let's start with a bit of context. So California in 2010, uh, the State Water Resources Control Board basically set these new requirements called once-through cooling requirements for power plants in the state of California, which is how we got to this point where we are today. And I think it's sort of interesting to just talk about what that is. It was basically uh, new regulations in California that are a response to the Clean Water Act, the Federal Clean Water Act, that uh, limit the ability of power plants to use seawater. And prior to that, their plants would just use like billions of tons of seawater. It would affect marine life in all these ways that environmentalists have been opposing. And so in response to the Clean Water Act, they imposed these new restrictions on, on power plants and affected about 19 plants in California of different kinds. Uh, and they're responding to it in different ways. Some of them are re- jiggering their technology and are going to comply. Some of them are just shutting down. And some of the ones that are shutting down in Southern California are why we have a resource need um, in that location and why this whole thing started. So that's in 2010. Then, like you said, in 2012, um, we started to look at what was going to replace this peaker in Southern California that is a 262 megawatt project that will shut down by 2020. So this is one of the plants that is no longer going to continue to operate. And it's a it's an NRG-owned gas peaker plant. So it's going to shut down at the end of 2020. Bidding took place in 2014 for what was going to replace it, or, or basically NRG proposed replacing it with a new gas plant in 2014 and got approval from the regulators, from the California Public Utilities Commission at the time. Um, storage and all these other preferred resources didn't really participate in the process at that point. This is 2014. It was early days for that market. And also that was sort of simultaneous when, when there was this other really important sort of landmark uh, bidding process, the LCR projects for anyone who's in the know on Southern California energy storage. So I think the energy storage industry's uh, collective attention was directed in that way at the time. So the CPUC approves this new gas plant to replace the old gas plant. And now we're at the point where we're basically about to get, potentially about to get final approval. The California Energy Commission um, has an evidentiary hearing on September 14th. So as we're recording, this is next week um, to look at this study that 
the California ISO, the grid operator, conducted, asking the question that you addressed in the intro, which is, um, could preferred resources, largely energy storage, but also some demand response and solar, could those resources offer the same local reliability benefits that this gas plant is basically there to serve? And so what the ISO did was run this study saying how much of these various resources would it take to meet the same requirements. And ultimately their results, the the sort of primary thing that they were looking at was a technical question. Could these preferred resources meet this local reliability need? And I think the result, the conclusion that the ISO came to um, under two different scenarios was yes, um, we definitely could replace this gas plant with a bunch of energy storage and demand response and solar and meet the same local reliability. Right. So you got the technical piece out of the way. Yeah. But then what they did is kind of a throwaway cost analysis. It was a really simplified analysis of what it might cost to do that. And the results of that were pretty striking. So just to throw a couple numbers at it. So the estimated cost that they include in the study for the Puente Power Project, which is the new gas plant that NRG is proposing to build, um, was $299 million. So about $300 million. The sort of primary scenario that they looked at for a bunch of resources that could replace it, um, distributed resources plus some front of the meter, sort of large scale energy storage, was $805 million. So $805 million instead of $300 million. In other words, almost three times as expensive. And so, you know, that's, if you look at that study, it would be easy to, to do a quick glance at it and say, oh, well, sure, you know, all this storage and demand response and stuff could replace the gas plant. But I mean, obviously, that's prohibitively expensive. We don't want to spend 2.7 times as much to do it. So, you know, thanks for looking it up. Let's wait until the costs come down. But um, we started digging into the cost assumptions that are baked in there. Why is storage so much more expensive? And we found that the numbers that they're using for what the cost of storage is are just way above market reality today. It's not necessarily the California ISO's fault, but basically what they did is they took this study that, that for which the cost numbers date back to 2014 for energy storage. And then they applied that to all of the different kinds of storage that they're assuming in this study. So they've got storage in here and, you know, this is a mix of resources. So you've got storage that's really short duration, sort of 30 minute type stuff, 15 minute even. Um, and then they've got storage all the way up to nine hour duration, which we can talk about. It's longer than any of the existing projects today in terms of batteries on the grid. All of that, they just assume this one cost, which is $485 per kilowatt hour. Um, from that study dating back to 2014. And anybody who's active in the sort of, especially the large scale energy storage market today will recognize those costs as being really high relative to what we're seeing bid even today, let alone in 2020 for large scale energy storage. <laughs> and what's also laughable is their cost assumptions for solar too. They say that the capital cost for solar would be around 265 a watt by 2020 when prices are well below a buck 50 per watt per watt today. I right. mean like yeah so <laughs> the ridiculous, you're being, the yeah, right? this, this is like absurd. This is absurd. So yeah. do, do you have that same reaction when you re- when you read through this and kind of realize this for the first time? Yeah, I do. I mean th- those numbers are are really high. We are already seeing projects getting installed for that that cost today that we're talking about 2020 
you know, we've got bids that are way below that. So, so we looked at it and we said, okay, what would it take for energy storage? What, what would energy storage costs have to be in order for this mix of resources to be cheaper than the gas plant? And the short answer is energy storage would have to come in on average across all these different durations and probably different technologies. It would have to come in somewhere between 175 and $200 per kilowatt hour. So that's way less than half of what the study was assuming. And admittedly, that's pretty aggressive for 2020. It's certainly below our forecasts. But if you're looking for ways in which it's possible, um, one, some of this is really long duration. You can get lower per kilowatt hour costs for long duration energy storage, typically. Also, this is going to be a lot of procurement if they did it. I mean, this is, so it'd end up being in this scenario, 260 megawatts, 1500 megawatt hours, 1522 megawatt hours of energy storage. That's you know, larger than the size of the entire energy storage market in the US last year. So you definitely get some volume benefits and some really aggressive bidding and so on. So the, you know, ultimate point here is um, energy storage might not be able to beat the gas plant on cost entirely over this time frame, but it certainly can get a lot closer than what is incorporated into this study. And because it's a preferred resource as defined by the state of California, you'd think they would want to take that into account before giving the final permit to this project. Well, that identification as a preferred resource is pretty important. What kind of added value does that give a technology like storage or solar plus storage over a gas plant? Yeah, I mean, you know, Julian Spector for GTM wrote the piece last week on this and first sort of launched this conversation publicly. And he actually chatted with somebody from AES who would obviously be one of the developers that would likely be bidding if this was opened back up and storage could compete. And they were making the point that, you know, if you're trying to get the cost down, multi applications trying to value stack with storage is a big way to do it. So, you know, it's not clear from the study exactly how much that storage would have to be charged and discharged according to the needs that are that are outlined for this local capacity. So what if you could use the storage for different applications, time of use shifting and and all these other kinds of things um, to generate additional value from it. And that's something that you, you know, you can certainly do with energy storage that often isn't taken into account. Go read Julian's story. Um, Shale alerted the editorial team to these numbers, and Julian did a great job of digging into them and talking to some other folks and walking through them with Shale. And I think he has a he has a nice synopsis of the scenario that we're talking about here. So if you want the Cliff's notes for this, rather than actually reading through the CEC report, go ahead and read that at Green Tech Media, and that will be in the show notes. And uh, for all you folks who want to go a bit deeper, we'll provide that deeper report as well. So where does um, the ISO and the CEC, which are in the later stages of approving this project, where do they go from here? And have you heard any response to this critique, which is a pretty substantial critique? Like this is not something you can ignore. Interestingly enough, since Julian published that piece, I've, I've heard from a bunch of different folks who are mostly piling on um, and noting additional things that they view as problematic in this 
ISO study that was was trying to compare these options. So the the additional things, just to list them off quickly, that that some folks have said are pr- problematic in the study. One, when the the study is looking at the cost of the solar plus storage, which they've got about a twenty five megawatt solar plus storage hybrid project, doesn't include the ITC which presumably that project would qualify for. And in 2020, the ITC will still exist, though it will be stepping down. Second, um, the load curves that are assumed. This gets a little bit wonky, but I'll try to make it pretty quick. So the ISO is using a a peak shape um, for the load that pushes consumption further into later hours, but then doesn't actually subtract that consumption from earlier hours. So basically the result of that is that there's a wider peak and the thing with energy storage is that the wider the peak, meaning the longer the period of time during which there is peak, the more energy storage it takes in order to compete. Um, so it's more expensive. So the load curves may or may not be right. And then finally, some of the really technical assumptions regarding um, storage inverters and how much they can provide what's called reactive power are debatable. So there's all these just like different little nuances to the ways in which this study may or may not have fully encompassed all the benefits of the energy storage and the costs thereof as well. And then I also heard just sort of stepping back from this specific project, somebody pointed out to me another case in which you've got a similar issue that might even have a broader application, which is that California is also in the midst of going through its integrated resource planning process, the IRP process, which is the process through which basically utilities do long-term planning that gets approved by the regulators. And in the CPUC's uh, IRP documents, they've also got storage cost assumptions. And those storage cost assumptions are actually even more ridiculous than the ones in this California ISO study. The low cost assumptions for a lithium-ion standard four-hour duration battery project in 2030, the low end of their assumptions, are numbers that we are seeing bid for projects getting constructed today. So this is not unique to this singular study. It's just a it's a problem, especially with energy storage, because costs are falling, falling so fast that when you rely upon any publicly available cost data that is even a little bit dated, you just get way behind the ball. And so you ultimately think that storage is going to be a lot more expensive than it is. Yeah, well, yet again, we have another example of regulators or policymakers who are well behind technology trends. And let me try to channel my futurist side, um, which a lot of people might actually agree with. And that is, the industry is so rife with problems like this, whether it be policymakers using EIA, backward-looking EIA data or incomplete EIA data, or using um, battery technology modeling like this that's out of date that uses 2014 data. Um, I feel like in the last couple of years, there have been at least a dozen examples that people have pointed out. Um, The most famous one being, this is a little bit different from the example that you've um, based this show around, but the the most interesting one being way back in 2009 when we saw Congress tried to pass the Waxman-Markey climate carbon cap and trade bill. They used EIA data to um, shoot for a 3% renewable energy target, non-hydro renewable energy target. And like the year before they crafted their bill, renewables had hit that goal. Um, 
it was just kind of it was just absurd. And so, you know, you might hear folks like Jigger Shaw on the Energy Gang podcast who just say, like, this is a actual crisis. You have people uh, at, at state regulatory bodies or federal lawmakers who are so out of touch with the data or utilities, for that matter, that are so out of touch uh, with this data that they have no idea what is coming for them. Um, you know, I think but you like, can be a little bit too extreme in that view. Like, I, I think many smart utilities and economists do know what's coming. But this is a chronic problem, I would argue. And it is illustrative of the, the fact that many people are not prepared for how quickly things are going to change underneath their feet. Just to, like, offer a little bit of sympathy for these the regulators and the policymakers who suffer from this challenge having spoken to a bunch of them about this kind of thing over and over over the years you know this was happening in solar when solar costs were falling so fast it's happening with energy storage now is that your challenge is twofold first if you are trying to make decisions based on cost information about these new technologies um, and you're in a public venue where people are going to comment and intervene and so on, you need to rely upon publicly available data. So the first problem that you've got is if you're trying to say like how much is storage going to cost in 2030, you need to be able to point to a source document somewhere. And the publicly available data that's out there um, isn't typically going to have come out just yesterday. So you know, what happened in this California ISO study is that they relied on, upon a publicly available piece of information that it ultimately sourced back to a study from 2014. And, you know, 2014 to 2017 may not be a big period of time in some markets, but it's it's basically an eternity in today's energy storage market. The second problem that you've got in addition to the requiring publicly available information is that second, you you have a long regulatory process. So even when you first use a study, um, that might be at the beginning of some docket that is going to be done in a year or two. So even if you had the most recent thing when you started, you don't by the end. So it's like a really hard challenge for them. These are sort of supposed to be relatively slow moving, stodgy industries. It's hard for them to figure out how to kind of keep their analysis fresh given how quickly these markets change. Yeah, no, pointing out the absurdity of the situation is not the same as criticizing many of the people who have to make these hard decisions because they are still making decisions within a framework that has been around for a century or so. We are in completely different territory, and I am absolutely sympathetic. But this is a very clear illustration of the new era that we've entered in. And it is a, a, a somewhat chronic problem. Like, there's no doubt about it. There are a number of examples of this over and over again. Yeah, I think it's almost impossible today to have accurate, up-to-date cost information and especially projections about energy storage if you're trying to make decisions in a regulatory venue today. So we don't want to just sit here and be critical. We're solutions people. Even if we don't have the solutions ourselves, we'd like to posit a few. And Shale, you have been thinking about this. Um, what would it take for a regulator or a utility or some policymaking body to get access to more up-to-date data? Because you know they don't have access to that proprietary data as easily, and they're relying on more outdated public resources. How do you fill that gap? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so I have been thinking about this because it's it's been an endless frustration for me as I look at decisions that are getting made all over the place. And 
again, you're trying to solve for this problem of like has to be publicly available, but has to also like survive the timeline of the regulatory process. And oftentimes what will end up happening is we'll look at these numbers. I'll look at these numbers and I'll say, God, these numbers are ridiculous. They're so dated. I, I have proprietary information because I know about some individual projects that are out there for which I can tell you the costs are already below what they're saying in 2030, for example. But that's not a solution because regulators cannot re- rely upon my word that there are projects out there that are, that are a lot cheaper. And similarly, the developers of those projects don't really want to share their cost information in the public. So I think that what might work, if somebody could figure out how to actually do this, and there's going to be nuance to this that I, I haven't thought of. So listeners, please tell me why this doesn't work. But I want there to be some kind of uh, publicly available resource that is largely designed for regulators and policymakers, wherein Developers of these assets, EPC companies, finance providers can enter anonymized information about cost assumptions they're baking into bids for the future. So this is forward-looking, saying this is what we're expecting to be building these projects for. Anonymized so that it doesn't give away all of your secret proprietary information. But if a regulator wants to rely upon some of that information in in um, a decision that they want to make, they have the mechanism to reach out directly to whoever inputted that cost information and get the background data, get the proof effectively, but then hide that proof, redact it in any public venue so that, again, you're not giving away anything too proprietary. I just want there to be a resource for these policymakers and regulators that they can point to and say, no, look, you know, there are costs that are much lower than what was you know, anticipated in last year's study here's the proof of it, and we can all trust it. Regular listeners, prepare to roll your eyes. Yes, I'm going to mention the DOE grid study again, but I can't help but broaden this even further and mention that DOE grid study, which I think one of my biggest criticisms of, and from many others I've heard, is that it's a snapshot of what has happened and what is happening currently. And within a six-month period of time, markets will have changed, technology costs will have dropped, and you are looking at a pretty different series of factors that are impacting market conditions. And my God, a year or two years from now, we're looking at such a completely different world. So when I read studies like this, I, you know, I'm willing to laud it for the incredible data collection and the snapshot it provides of what's happening now, but it is obsolete very quickly. And it's symptomatic of what we're seeing in smaller, more power plant specific decision making processes around the country, like we're talking about with the point day plant. Yeah, and it ultimately can be somewhat pernicious if you if you always rely upon this dated information about costs. Like an example of you know a way in which it could play out that would be a bigger deal. Um, there's this bill that that Jeff Flake, the senator from Arizona, has that he's introduced in Congress, which would set a, basically a 2028 target for energy storage in the U.S., a cost target um, for some demonstration projects, but ultimately the sort of overall cost target of $100 per kilowatt hour. So that's by 2028. It's longer than what we're talking about for this Puente project. It's also way, way, way lower. $100 per kilowatt hour is like well below those 2030 numbers that I was saying that the CPUC is relying upon. So one could look at that, at the CPUC's numbers and at this Jeff Flake's bill and just say, well, that's crazy. You know, I'm not going to support that bill or, you know, I don't, I don't think it means anything because 
there's just no way we're going to get to $100 per kilowatt hour. But I think the reality is, if you look at the actual current cost trajectory and some of the forecasts um, that are a little bit more more up to date, that $100 per kilowatt hour by late next decade is certainly ambitious, as any sort of government target should be, um, but is not completely insane. And so you just need to be careful about the ways in which these numbers get thrown around and the ways they ultimately impact like both public policy more broadly, and then specifically, as is in the case in California, decisions about power plants that are going to get built. Yeah. Hey, Jigger Shaw, if you're listening to this, I know I've argued with you over IEA data and the meaning of IEA data, and I've come around to your argument, which is that that this stuff has a lot more backroom impact than I was giving it credit for. Um, and I know we're not talking about EIA data in this case. I want to be very clear about that, but... Um, you know, certain data sets that have limitations or that are backward looking certainly have a an extraordinary influence on the decisions that we're making today on the electric sector. So I have become more aware of, of those impacts. Yeah, EIA's got its problems too. I mean, what's interesting about this case and, and makes it even a little bit scarier to me is that I think that the numbers that um, both the numbers in this Puente study and the, the IRP numbers that the CPUC is relying upon, they were probably reasonable that when they came out, right? They, at the time, those were the sort of active costs and, and reasonable cost assumptions about what was going to come. It's just the market has evolved so quickly that they're dated already. By the way, Puente means bridge in Spanish, which is funny. Everyone, of course, calls natural gas a bridge. Right. Only in this case, um, it, it, maybe it's like a puente to nowhere. <laughs> okay. Well, if it's a puente to nowhere, where do we go exactly? You know, I think, so there's a couple of things. The point of what we were trying to look at here is not to say don't approve this puente project. It may actually be the best resource for the location and for the need, there is a fair amount of opposition to it. So we, I don't know what's going to end up happening. There's this, as I said, evidentiary hearing next week at the California Energy Commission. It will be interesting to see what comes out of that. So this project will or won't get approved. I think in general, we all, and especially um, anybody who's acting in a public venue and making decisions about this kind of thing, just needs to be really careful about being clear on what cost assumptions they're using for technologies that are rapidly evolving. And to whatever extent that they can, try to pull in multiple sources, try to pull in anything that is as as up-to-date as possible. And then just, if you can do it, if there's a way to do it in the regulatory world, just gut check those numbers with the developer. Like, I, you know, just call AES or Tesla or Greensmith or somebody and just say like, hey, is... Uh, is $485 a kilowatt hour for utility scale energy storage in 2020 crazy? And they could just be like, yeah, that's kind of crazy. And then see if you can find something else. Now I realize that request is like <laughs> impossible for a number of reasons. Like one, in fairness, regulators, if they're going to have this conversation with a the storage developer, they should probably have the same conversation with the gas developers. Maybe it turns out that the cost assumptions are too high for the gas plant too. And two, you know, they just, one of the problems, or I guess this is a good thing in writ large, but one of the challenges is that a regulator can't just call up a developer and ask something like that. It's an, it's an out of I can't remember what the term is, but they they have to then report on that publicly. They can't have these private conversations. In fact, that was part of what got the last previous president of the CPUC in a lot of trouble. So, you know, just the nature of the world that they live in makes it hard to do this kind of thing. But 
it sure would be helpful when you have a market like energy storage. Hmm. Well, we want to extend a puente to you, our listeners. And if you have any ideas on how to solve an, a really sticky issue like this, let us know on Twitter. You can email us at podcast at greentechmedia.com, but definitely the best way to get us is on Twitter. Shale is uh, Shale Khan, and uh, I'm Stephen Lacey. We're, we're, we're super easy to find. We love hearing from listeners. You know, the fa- past few episodes that we've done that have elicited a lot of response has really helped us um, continue to evolve our thinking on the issues that we're covering. So we we really do love it. And in this case, there's some probably some concrete solutions or scenarios that you could posit that help us might uh, might help us advance this conversation. Shale, thanks for bringing this to our attention. This was a, a good one, and I'm sure we'll probably find many more like it. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope not to, but um, yeah, right. <laughs> I'm glad we did with this one. I would just add also in terms of feedback, like I said, when we published the original article about this with some of the analysis that I did, I did get a bunch of really valuable feedback from folks that was largely piling on with other issues about the this study or pointing out other places that dated storage cost assumptions have been used. And that's really useful. Keep that coming. But also, please, if you're on the other side of this, if you see ways in which you think that energy storage can't meet this need or ways in which, say, the gas cost assumptions are too high, I would love to get that feedback, too, because I want to make sure that we're looking at this in its entirety and not just taking one bit of it and expanding too far. For sure. We often say this. We learn a lot from our guests and from each other, but we do learn a lot from all of you out there, many of whom are, um, you got your heads really deep in this stuff, and some of your feedback is extremely helpful to us. So let us know what you think. Shio Khan, we'll catch you next week, right? I think so. We'll talk okay. to you next week. With Shio Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you next time.